0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, "The Unseen Hand of God." So, turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter forty-four, verses eighteen to thirty-four, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled "The Advocate."
1: A lawyer is sometimes called an advocate. That is, if you're taking a court for whatever reason, a lawyer is someone who understands the law and knows legal precedent. and He knows how evidence is to be presented in a court. He knows how to argue your case on your behalf. You know, it's been said that anyone who represents himself in a court of law has a fool for a client. But it's not only in a law court that we need someone to advocate on our behalf. Here's another example. You know, I've been in pastoral ministry now for many years, and over those years, I've come to a conclusion about the pastoral ministry. It does no good to defend yourself. Criticism comes, sometimes accusations come, and all pastors know that if they attempt to defend themselves, they almost certainly fail. But if they have an elder or a church board or a trusted and dependable friend who's willing to hear them out and then speak on their behalf, that can be very effective indeed. But left to himself, I mean, most pastors will tell you that they're defenseless unless they do have an advocate. But as we know, that's also true in our relationship with God. Job stated it very well. You know, He was suffering and his friends were telling him that, that God must be punishing him for his sins. And even though Job knows that's not the case, yet still, he wants to present his case before God. But God, who is all-knowing, would point out all of Job's hidden faults. And, And God, who is perfectly righteous, will not hold Job as innocent as he believes he is. And God, who is perfectly wise, would run circles around any case that Job would present before God. So what is Job to do? Well, listen to a part of his speech, and it's found here in Job 9, verses 32 and 33. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. There is no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on us both. (laughs) Well, now that's asking for quite a lot. An arbitrator who might advocate for both Job and for God. Seems like an impossible dream. Indeed, this problem between a perfect God and us is expressed several times in the First Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. It's, it's Eli, the high priest in Israel, and, and he's rebuking his sons because they're sinning at the altar of the Lord. So listen to what he says. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Yeah, that's the question. Who would be the barrister who would make a case before God's bar of justice on our behalf? Now, of course, only God himself could serve as our defense attorney before God, but that seems impossible, and yet, of course, it's possible. There are marvelous words that come to us from 1 John chapter 2, verse one, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is, Jesus by his blood pleads our defense before the Father. Now, of course, he is, as you might know, the most remarkable defense attorney in history. He never approached the Father regarding John Newfeld's sins by saying, Look, Your Honor, John is innocent. No, he actually said John is overwhelmingly guilty. And furthermore, Jesus didn't approach God's bar of justice by arguing that there were mitigating circumstances that should be considered. Things like John was doing his best or John lived in a particularly sinful culture and he was a good man, but he sometimes got confused. Well, Jesus never told the father, yeah, John isn't perfect, but he's better than most. Indeed. He did tell the father that I was definitely not better than most, not that that would have mattered. And Jesus, my lawyer, never said, John did the best he knew how, given his limitations. Instead, Jesus said, John was a treasonous rebel against your kingdom who deserves the full weight of your justice, that being eternal condemnation. But then, of course, in love and mercy, my lawyer told the great and awesome God, that he, Jesus, the altogether righteous one in whom there is no sin, he was condemned in my place. And furthermore, his wounds plead for me. And, And even further, he successfully argued that I should be judged on the basis of Christ's righteous life. And so this amazing advocate of mine gained my pardon and I am set free. And that, my friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is worthy to play such a role. No one else can. Now it is, as we are studying the life of Joseph, important to notice that this last part of Genesis chapter 44 is an amazing chapter about advocacy. There's a drama that's being played out here. The 11 brothers were on their way home, and Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, has placed his prized cup in Benjamin's sack. Then he called his servants to chase after the brothers and overtake them and search their sacks. His prized cup was found in the youngest brother's sack. It's a setup, of course, but who will advocate for them before the ruler of Egypt? The brothers are brought back to Joseph's house, and Joseph tells them they can all go free. Only Benjamin is found guilty, and he will be made a lifelong slave in Egypt. The rest will take your food and go home. Of course, Joseph is testing them. These ten brothers once sold him into slavery out of hatred for him. He now waits to see whether they will wash their hands of Benjamin, who is dad's new favorite, and go home with their food. I say it's a test because Joseph, the ruler of the land, wants to know if there is any ground at all for reconciliation with his brothers. And so having offered the brothers the opportunity to allow Benjamin to be condemned, he now sits back and watches them closely. Twenty years have passed since he was condemned to slavery by these very brothers. At that time, there had been an argument among them. Shall we kill him or shall we make money off him and sell him as a slave to a group of Midianite traders on their way to Egypt? But never for a moment did they discuss the possibility of showing mercy and of reconciling their differences. When it was in their power to harm him, they had shown him no mercy at all. What will they do now? Joseph stands before them, but of course, they don't know he is Joseph. They know him only as Zephanath-Paneah, and he has never spoken a word to them if not through an interpreter. You know, perhaps it's time to cut their losses, they might think. It's time to go home. Meanwhile, Benjamin stands there. No one's asking him anything. He simply awaits his fate. How could anyone advocate for him now except for this one truth? Judah, his half-brother, has made a promise to their father that he will protect Benjamin's life at the cost of his own. Well, we come now to Genesis 44, verses 18 to 23. Then Judah went up to him and said, "'O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself.' My Lord asked his servant, saying, "'Have you a father or a brother?' And we said to my Lord, "'We have a father, an old man, and a young brother,' the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Now this is a part of the longest speech that is made in the book of Genesis. And I've decided to break it down into three sections. And this first section is the one that I would call stating the basic facts of the case. You know, like any good lawyer, Judah wants to state the facts of the case, those things upon which everyone agrees. Fact number one, Benjamin is here today because of obedience to the Lord of the land. You had a right to do that, he said, for you are the Lord of the land and the land is entrusted into your safekeeping. And we've brought him in obedience to your command. Fact number two, we didn't want to bring him. He came for only one reason. It's not that we were rebelling against your command. It's because he's precious to his father, and we were concerned about his father's state. We're even more concerned about what should happen if he didn't come back, for we know that it will kill his dad if he doesn't show up. Now, in all of this, it's so important to hear Judah's respectful tone. Six times in this passage, he addresses the ruler of the land as, he says, my Lord. He wants to be clear that he's not challenging the nature of things. He, the Lord of the land, is the superior and Judah is the inferior. He calls himself Joseph's servants and he makes a plea for mercy, even in presenting the defense. He calls upon Joseph to indulge the defense and acknowledges that Joseph has no need to listen to him. He would rightfully be angry with him. In this way Judah very skillfully is setting up the case that he will make. He says it is a part of grace on Joseph's part that Judah would be allowed to speak and he acknowledges that everything Joseph has done is justified. But then Judah the advocate is about to do his work.
0: Psalms of the seasons it's our 2020 Back to the Bible Canada Scripture Calendar, and it reminds us of so many things. It reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of this creation and the beauty of God's Word. A uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Newfeld is placed within the calendar, encouraging each of us to open up our Bibles every day. This is a practice and discipline critical to creating a steadfast foundation for faith. Use your calendar as a reminder to engage in the Bible every day and use the Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in 2020. This resource is filled with encouragement, and it's yours for free. Just ask. Simply request your copy today. And perhaps consider a gracious gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Either way, call us for your free calendar at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at Back to the Bible.
1: In Genesis 44, verses 24 to 29, Joseph moves from restating the facts of the case to filling in some details that Joseph would not have known. That is, in order to judge fairly, it would be helpful for the ruler of the land to have more context to the case that is before him. And Judah is about to deliver some context that Joseph will want to consider. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. You know, the context that Judah wants the ruler of the land to understand is the drama that has happened at home that brought Benjamin to Egypt. Judah wants Joseph to know there is a very heavy grief that attends to his father, The reason their father has such attachment to this particular boy is that his wife had borne him two sons. It's an interesting statement. Indeed, there were three other wives, but Judah, in effect, acknowledges that their father has never wanted to have multiple wives. But in order for their father to marry the woman he loved, these other wives were thrust upon him. He says, our father said that his wife, singular, his wife bore him two sons. In essence, Judah is admitting that the other ten brothers have never been what his father had wanted. They are unwanted sons. And of course, this is key to Judah's argument, and I have no doubt at this moment, Joseph was sitting at the edge of his chair. Judah has just touched upon the very reason for the dysfunction and the hatred and the sins of this family. The ten were unwanted, and they had despised the two sons that were wanted. And Judah doesn't hide the family secrets. He wants the ruler of the land to know that this was their father's mindset. Then he adds something that's even more poignant. Notice that Judah says something about the fact that Joseph is missing from the family. Judah, as we see his defense, is a truth teller. There are no lies here. Of course, he doesn't say everything, but what he does say is entirely correct. He doesn't tell the ruler of the land that one son was torn to pieces by wild beasts. Now, that was 20 years ago, the lie that they told their father. But now, as he retells the story, he only mentions that the father has not seen the one son for 20 years and that the father believes him to have been torn by wild beasts. Of course, up to this point, Joseph never knew what his father thought about his absence. What had the brothers said? It now becomes clear that this is the story they have told their father. And Judah, for his part, does not mention what they have done nor that they, the ten, are responsible for their father's grief. Yeah, He omits he the most important part of the story, but still, he's not lying. And that brings Judah to the missing piece, the, the piece that neither the ruler of Egypt nor Joseph would ever have known. The father has never stopped weeping for his missing son. That is the sorrow that has never left him. It is his permanent status now. He is a man of deep sadness. And so turning to the issue of Benjamin, if one more sorrow like the last were to be inflicted upon the father, he would die in sorrow. Now, let's be clear. That's not yet a defense. I mean, after all, Judah has not argued, has he, that Benjamin is innocent or that in some fashion the whole thing has been a setup. He doesn't suggest that someone else is guilty. He lets the charges against Benjamin simply stand. This advocate, Judah, has decided to defend the case on a completely different ground. And before he will defend Benjamin, Judah is simply filling in a series of facts that will help give context to the defense that he is about to make. But now, having laid out the context of the case, the lawyer, Judah, is about to appeal for Benjamin. And the case for Benjamin's release comes on the most surprising grounds. No, Judah will not argue for Benjamin's innocence. He will not even argue that given the hardship that would incur if he were to be enslaved, That he should be released. If Joseph had assumed that that's what Judah was going to say, well, he was about to be thoroughly surprised. So let's hear the third part of Judah's speech, that part of the case where the defense attorney argues for the release of his client. Judah starts very slowly. Here, let's read chapter 44, verses 30 to 32. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, before I go on, notice very carefully what Judah is saying. He is not telling Joseph that he, that is, Joseph, will be responsible for killing the old man. No, he tells Joseph that if Benjamin doesn't return, he said, then it will be me, that is, Judah, who will be responsible for the death of the boy, because I gave the guarantee to his father. It is my word that is at stake. And so on the basis of everything that he said, Judah is now finally ready to make his plea for Benjamin's release. And when we think about it, it's a remarkable bit of lawyering, even while it's quite surprising. I'm reading verses 33 to 34. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So that's the case. Given all these mitigating circumstances, and although Judah doesn't say it, but I have to assume that he is saying that he himself would be a very valuable slave. And so please allow me, he says, to be substituted in place of the boy. I will gladly serve as a slave and I will serve well. I have every motivation in the world to keep my word and not to take advantage of the substitution. See, at this moment, I can only imagine Joseph is overwhelmed and and shocked and stunned. Wasn't it Judah himself 20 years earlier who had cooked up this idea of selling Joseph into slavery? What had happened to him that he should step forward and volunteer now to become a slave in the place of his brother? And Judah's answer is twofold. Number one, I've given my word. And number two, I have concern and love for my father and I would gladly do this in order to honor him. You know, any Christian reading this account will be struck by both the dissimilarities of this account, that is to the gospel, as well as the amazing similarities. You see, unlike Benjamin, we were not set up. We are all fully guilty of sin. And unlike Jacob, God the Father is not a father that has gotten his priorities mixed up. And furthermore, unlike Judah, Jesus was not a part of a plot to sell us off into slavery, a plot he must now confess in order to redeem himself. There are enough dissimilarities in this story to that of the story of the gospel that we would be remiss if we did not point these things out. And yet, there is one similarity that is really quite remarkable. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Judah is a proper forerunner to the Messiah. For he comes before the bar of justice and he offers himself up in the place of another. He offers to suffer so that Benjamin can go free. He would be willing to bear the yokes that he might show mercy to his brother and also show love and honor to his father. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, unlike Judah, who only made the offer, Jesus carried out the offer. As he suffered on the cross, we remember that those sufferings were ones that we should have borne. Every once in a while, I meet someone who says, you know, I I don't actually believe in the Penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That is, I don't believe that Jesus paid my penalty on the cross. I simply believe that Jesus' death on the cross is a demonstration of the love of God. Well, I respond in this way. When someone suffered for you, how denigrating, how unthankful, how dishonoring it is to say, I won't acknowledge that this is what you did. My sins didn't deserve the wrath of God. No, I was fine without you. No, your cross only reminds me of love, not the penalty for my sins. My dear listener, unless Jesus is both your advocate and your substitute, you will be condemned and there is no hope for you at all. But God in his love sent his son to be your advocate and to pay your price. It's time for you to surrender to him and to say to God the Father, thank you for sending the son. Thank you for what was done so that I could be freed.
0: John, I think you've made a clear message today, but, you know, today, the whole idea of being an advocate is really being weakened, I think, in some respects, in the church.
1: Yeah, I think what's, what's missing for many of us is this idea that we need to be saved. We can't be saved. Our sins uh, speak against us before a most holy God, and he will demand an accounting for our lifeblood. So, um, you know, this is all there, and it's a part of the gospel. And I love to say to someone who you know, denies the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, if Christ didn't suffer for us, then it's only left for us to suffer for our own sins. But of course, Christ has taken our place.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our last week of the series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Heidi wrote in to say, I discovered your program last summer, and since then, well, I've learned so much from the expository teaching of the Bible. Well, thanks, Heidi. You know, it's hearing the stories of friends like you that assures us that the Bible teaching program is making a difference. If you believe in the importance of sharing the word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month, or consider becoming a monthly partner. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program is heard in your community and right across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become a monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible dot c a.